Welcome to a Bit Cryptic Podcast, where we interview top crypto experts to take you down the rabbit hole into the world of cryptocurrency. Now, it's time to get a bit cryptic. everyone, it's Dung, host of A Bit Cryptic. Our guest today, uh, Risky Rakhmat, he's an international hip-hop artist and visual designer who has plunged into the world of emerging technologies with a video documentary. It's called Risky Presents Blockchain. Its season one is now available on Amazon Prime. Now, throughout the season, Risky, as the narrator and host, uh, he blends a really interesting urban style into each episode as he takes the audience on various adventures to understand how democracy, cybersecurity, and the future of finance are going to be impacted by this technology. Risky, welcome to our show. What's going on? What's up, man? Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. So you're based out of Washington, D.C., right? Uh, Often people think that D.C. is the nation's capital, is a place for government, political affairs, you know, think tanks, uh, which you're involved by way of uh, some of your work. Uh, but there's more to your persona and passion. So walk us through your career as, as both a hip hop dance artist and data visualizer. OK, cool. Well, you know, to your first point, it's, it's absolutely true that uh, there seems to be this common theme that folks live kind of a dual life where they have their day, nine to five day, they have their suit and tie. They probably work on the Hill or some lobbying group or some government contracting agency. And that night, really, they kind of turn into, I wouldn't say more of themselves, but they find other passions and hobbies. Um, Mine just happens to be dance, you know, and martial arts, but other people do a ton of other things. So DC is interesting in that sense where most people see what's on the surface, you know, in the news and the media and people come here for, for tourists kind of visits, they'll go see the monuments, um, different museums and Smithsonian's and whatnot. But what doesn't often get talked about is like the rich art scene, the art, music, um, kind of festivals and concerts that are often going on. For me, I grew up in Northern Virginia, which is about 30 minutes away, less than 30 minutes away from DC. Um, We call it the DMV area, DC, Maryland, and Virginia, because we're really kind of a a tri-state, kind of hub. Um, everyone's pretty close to each other. So I grew up um, in this area. My dad worked in the city um, at the Indonesian embassy. I'm Indonesian. Um, was visiting and fre- frequently visiting the city, just kind of tagging along with him um, as I was growing up. Uh, to your question, I got into um, dance um, and the arts early on in high school. Um, before that, I was a martial artist. So I was really always involved in some type of um, movement art. Uh, it wasn't until college where I started getting involved in data science, um, data analytics, and visualization and economics, um, which is where I kind of started diving into more the the intellectual side of ideas and participating in those conversations. Um, and at you know, fast forward till now, I'm still doing all of those things. I'm still dancing with dance. I'm teaching. I'm organizing um, communities and groups and events. Um, with my art um, in terms of data visualization. That's my specialty. Um, I work within industry, academia, and policy. Um, and yeah, and this opportunity came around to kind of 
um, draw the picture of what the blockchain Bitcoin community is about. And it was just fascinating and exciting. So mm. I took it on and it was basically, um, you know, a good challenge to, to, to work with. I think we do an okay job um, at telling the story, but, uh, you know, um, hearing more feedback and learning more of what people think could be better ways and better topics is, is what we're all about. So for your creative spirit, uh, as an artist, you, you, you spoke a little bit about the various forces that have shaped you. I mean, so part of it is your family, your childhood, the community in which you grew up. Um, were there any particular source of inspiration that that's just really helped to define you? Sure. So I'd have to say, like, my mother uh, is, she's a dancer herself. And I've always watched her um, choreograph, teach, and, and do shows as a kid. Um, and if, for those of you who don't know, in Indonesian um, dance culture, it's very, um, there's a lot of characters, there's a lot of masks, a lot of um, costuming. Mm -hmm. uh, they tell, like, a ton of different um stories that are related to different homelands and islands in Indonesia. Um, one of my early experiences that kind of influenced the way I thought about storytelling was watching uh, what's called the Wayang Master. It's a puppet master, okay? So it's like the shadow puppets where they basically would have um, basically like a, a white cloth, a candle or some light, and then they'd have shadow puppets telling stories. What intrigued me and what I had come to understand later in my life is that a lot of the stories they were telling were things that communities had trouble talking about, things that were taboo, things that were, mm -hmm. you know, e either brought up a little bit of tension or so I, I started to realize that these quote unquote artists or these Wyom masters were doing so much more for their communities um, outside of just playfully telling stories. Right. They were really opening up uh, uh opportunities for conversation they were really like creating dialogue for something that was hard to talk about so keeping that kind of through line into my work now um the way that i approach data visualization or say you know hosting a show on blockchain is the same it's like how do we find ways so that people can connect with ideas that might not be so easy to explain um technically speaking there's a lot of jargon and a lot of like complex concepts involved, but how do we simplify it? How do we get to the core of it and communicate that in, a, in an appealing way? So I would say my early experience is one, watching my mom and then just seeing the, um, the wide variety of Indonesian art forms. Um, there's so much involved in, in one of these productions. It's like the music, the costume, the lighting, and all of those things are when I'm looking at like a, a chart or a piece of data visualization, I'm looking at the layout, the colors, the formatting, the shapes, the visual metaphors. It's like in a similar way packaged, you know? So um, yeah, those, those experiences, I would have to, I would have to attribute um, a lot of the inspiration to my mom. <laughs> wow. That's, that's fascinating because in, in emerging technologies, everything is nascent and unfolding uh, in real time. And so uh, in a, a space like, blockchain technology, uh, we find it to be constructive and useful and relatable if we use metaphors and and we tell uh, in historical parallels and reach back into, you know, like force, uh, 
forces and things that that people and society and humans have have been doing uh, for centuries, but it's just evolved over time, like exploring the, the various dimensions of, of, of money and how it's uh, been used as a, uh, a social uh, mechanism, a social tool uh, to uh, help people, uh, you know, make trades and be able to uh, exchange uh, value. And, mm-hmm. and so it's, it's, it's quite fascinating that we're, you know, we're, we're borrowing the, um, the knowledge and the skills in one area. And then, you know, we, uh, we are taking that to a different area and uh, helping really to, to elevate the, the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you hit, you hit the nail on the head with the concept of value in general and how, what money is, right. It's, you know, it's a medium of exchange. You know, people kind of sometimes demonize money, right. But it's like money helps facilitate and lubricate like transactions, like exchanges, like, if we didn't have money, we'd still basically, I'd be trading like my charts for your, you know, professional yeah. podcast services or yeah. what have you, right? Yeah. So this idea of explaining value is such an intriguing thing because um, value in and of itself, you know, it's subjective. I mean, in the market, it's it's the price. It's, you know, price, you know, price and quantity. So like supply and demand at work, right? So like I might be willing to pay $5 for a latte while you might only be willing to pay 50 cents. You know, our preferences and tastes differ. The role of the communicator or the artist is to help ascribe meaning and to help people share their perspective on what meaning is within certain, within certain um, applications. And with Bitcoin and blockchain, I mean, one of the biggest things is what is this quote unquote digital gold? Like how, what is that? I mean, what is, how is that different from gold? Is meaning still the same or is value still the same? Is it preserved? Is it not preserved? Perception is such a huge thing with this whole um, explaining of what Bitcoin is and, and even to people who are involved. Like, so anyways, yeah, I, I agree with you hundred percent. So what then drove you to start making this documentary? So walk us back to, to the beginning. Uh, what, what was the, the motivation there? So honestly, it was it was uh, Calvin Tran, who's the mm-hmm. film director and producer. Um, he has been um, overly nerdy and involved in Bitcoin since its heyday, you know, right. since the beginning. Um, and at the time, he himself was, I believe, in, uh, in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he just, you know, he basically pitched it to me and said, look, like, I want to create this this documentary. It's about Bitcoin. Um, do you know anything about it? I said, well, you know, I, I know a couple of things. I know kind of the basics and where it's going, where it's come from. But he's like, um, that's great. But Riz, I want you to kind of like, I want you to tell the story of Bitcoin and blockchain through your lens. Because um, we have a lot of white papers and research and papers that are discussing and determining like what technical pieces of it and how it makes it work. But we don't have um, great ways to communicate it. So we want to apply something that is seemingly, you know, someone from a community that's seemingly detached, right? So like a hip hop, urban street culture um, lens and applying it onto uh, observing what Bitcoin is or, you know, first it was a project on Bitcoin, but then we realized 
um, that blockchain is the thing that drives, you know, is not only the thing that drives Bitcoin, but it is, it is a much more fascinating topic because when you speak about blockchain technology, you can apply it across various spectrums and that's where we wanted to, to take it. But Calvin, I would say is the, is the impetus behind all of this. I was just right. really kind of the, the vehicle. You know? but, but you don't have a background in entertainment film production, right? <laughs> no, uh, if, if anything, I am a very pseudo rookie noob at like editing in Adobe Premiere and stuff like this. Very, very just like um, DIY, but I, right. I do not have editing or even host experience. So, which is why, which is why you know, might, might have sounded awkward here and there. Or, you know, it's the first time I had to like really memorize lines and yeah. figure that out. I've always had an interest in it. I took like theater class and yeah. stuff like this, but. Never where I had, I've never been, you know, in a, in a position where I had to be a host. So right. it was a very new experience for me. And uh, Okay, yeah. so for someone who's just doing the hosting and a film production for the same time, and, and you're the narrator, like, what's the, what is the process you have to go through? I mean, do you feel pressure getting the scripts right? And what, what was the collaboration process like with Calvin? So what's really cool about Calvin is he, so what's really cool about our dynamic is that we both get each other. Right. So he knows that I'm like this, this art arts minded person. Like I'm also technical, but I'm more, I'm always first and foremost an artist. So I'm not as organized in terms of if I'm not really into it, then I, it takes a while for me to get as organized as I need to be. So he's the guy who goes, here's a first draft of your script, take a look at it feel free to, you know, reword it in your own way. Or if you have better metaphors or better examples, I want this to be you. Right. So he'll basically give me a script. I read the script and I say, ah, I like this, or this doesn't really sound like me. I can change it like this, or here are some options. And he'll say, cool, let's run with it. So once we get to the day of filming, it's another story. Like I'll memorize the lines, but sometimes the lines either might not feel natural and organic so we'll do a couple takes, you know, so sometimes we'll even do like 10, 10 to 12 takes where um, we'll just say, forget the lines, raise, like we're talking about uh, blockchain and the law right now, explain like just without anything in mind, like tell me, tell me how you'd explain it. And so we had a couple runs where we had to ditch the script, go back and do something more natural. And it's always been kind of like a balance between, uh, between the two. So after we shoot, obviously, he takes all that stuff and just, you know, makes makes it look even cooler, uh, makes me look um, somewhat intelligent um, in explaining the stuff. And, and yeah, that's pretty much the flow. But I think that the, the great thing about um, Calvin is that whoever he's working with, um, even not just me as a host, but also his uh, counterpart cameramen and the other people that are helping with the production side of things, is that he really knows how to how to manage the whole thing. It's it's a court, it's an orchestra. You know, he's really like a conductor, like making sure that each instrument's being played the right way and, and stuff like this. So yeah. a lot of kudos to him. Yeah. So I mean this it's an exhausting process, it seems, because you have to have certain, you know, foundation and the the knowledge to be able to understand this stuff. But then when you're on the set, you have to you have to take a very thoughtful uh, approach to how you know you're gonna explain these things yeah. um, and at the same time uh, you're traveling through many different landscapes and you're meeting new yeah. people and you're trying to memorize their names and you know their projects and what they do <laughs> yeah. 
and and not to na- not to name some people, but you know sometimes it doesn't work out. Some of the people we interviewed are very very high profile, um, very in demand people. They have busy schedules basically. Yeah. Some people that we originally wanted, you know, didn't end up working. We even scheduled the time and uh, you know even even travel to their to the locations that they are, and sometimes it just doesn't doesn't end up working, and you just kind of have to take the bullet, you know. But um, not naming names. But you know, it's 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 a thing. So right. doing a documentary where you involve other people is always going to be a risk involved. So, right. yeah. so to give people a taste of you know what they could experience uh, here with with the show is is uh, I I actually watched the first full episode, which is uh, available uh, complimentary for people. Uh, so they can be able to uh, get a preview uh, of what the whole season will be like. Um, so uh, this this is available on YouTube, right? Uh, the first episode? First episode is available on YouTube, and I believe it's also available on Vimeo. Okay, okay. Yeah. So the reason why I said it is it can be exhausting because after watching this first episode, it's it's quite amazing because you are in... Uh, Missoula, Montana. It's a city in West Montana, right? And this is in a dead of winter. And I imagine the driving conditions got to be dangerous. And there's rugged mountains, you know, and, and you're visiting this gigantic Bitcoin mining data center. I mean, first of all, I mean, how did you even get there? How did you find the place? Um, Kevin, uh, Calvin did a lot of the back end work of, of, of basically finding um, Hyperblock is the company that has the data warehouse out there, communicating with them with in terms of logistics. Uh, once we got out there, I mean, it, it was it was like it was the it was maybe mid January, so it was in the dead is dead center of winter, um, definitely snowing. I mean, it, it wasn't it wasn't that bad, but you know, we we were driving in the snow. Missoula is not, you know, um, if you're not from there, like, you know, you're driving around mountains and stuff yeah. like that. So it's, yeah, it's not, it's not Los Angeles. <laughs> it's, not, it's not Los Angeles or DC, you know, there's not a lot of traffic, but there is a lot of like wilderness and animals. So, um, so, but, but yeah, to your point, um, it does require a lot of logistics and Missoula was an interesting place because this, this mining warehouse was, really just out in the middle of nowhere. And when you think about it, right, um, you want to, you want to, you want to have an efficient, low resource cost operation, um, especially for Bitcoin mining, you know, um, and the place like Missoula is, is a good place for that. Um, if you watch the first episode, you'll learn that that company, uh, Hyperblock had to do a lot in terms of, um, creating an infrastructure that helped actually run the facility. So they had to work with the electric company um, to upgrade their system because the, the amount of electricity that was required um, to do a lot of the mining was just far exceeding the amount of electricity that that town was using. So they had to upgrade that system. They also had to deal with a lot of the communities. Like a lot of the fans were um, creating a, a vibration or a frequency that you can the human ear can hear. So a lot of the neighbors were saying, hey, it's a bit too loud. So they changed up their fans. Um, they they designed new models and basically decreased that decibel um, of a frequency to one that was tolerable. So they're constantly working with um, with the people within their community to accommodate you know this new thing that's coming into town and a lot of a lot of different um, kind of complaints that that come that come to the town halls. You know specifically one of the ones that was very 
funny and interesting is that, you know, some of the, the people who don't understand what, uh, what mining is, right. They, they think that they're actually mining like physical, um, gold, gold, and uh, that there there would be excess waste that's going to be dumped into rivers, right? So literally, at some of these town halls, it's really more of an educational piece where they go in and they really have to help people understand that guys, like we are not digging anything up in the ground physically. This is a this is a digital operation. Here's what we're doing. So it's just fascinating to meet people who are um, actually in the trenches, kind of. Uh, that are part of the ecosystem that aren't just, you know, clicking, purchasing and buying, you know, some of, some of, some of us do. It's uh, people who are making the thing work. So. so what is the role of a Bitcoin data mining center? I mean, in, in my mind, the Bitcoin network allows anyone to uh, send and receive Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, uh, digital cash, uh, without going through a central authority um, like a bank or, or government. And so, but someone has to be able to validate uh, the transactions and facilitate these transactions on, on the network and to make sure uh, that it flows through in a valid and a legitimate fashion uh, and the role of mining is to help um, validate uh, those transactions and to and to verify them is that what the role of uh, this center does i mean does it help people understand you know what is the role of, of a facility like this it sounds very industrial uh-huh. Uh-huh. yeah i know i think you hit on a lot of it i think um so the CEO of Hyperblock, Sean Walsh, does a very good job in explaining this. He said that the mining operation is, is Bitcoin blockchain security. Like it is what makes this whole thing secure. Without mining, you know, we're not, we don't have things that are verifying, um, authenticating. We don't find the unique hash. Um, so really miners, you know, obviously they're not digging anything up. But what they're providing is an infrastructure that is secure, that allows us to determine who's who, um, who owns what and what's true. But without mining, I think uh, the security of the system kind of will just it just wouldn't operate in, in, in the way that it does. So um, Sean Walsh explains this in the first season and he's, he's much more eloquent about it. Um, so I highly recommend you guys take a look at it. Hmm. Right. What were your other memorable moments or episodes that you had? Um, this this first one, I, I think, is just a, a great uh, preview of what, what people could could see. But um, other than than the Missoula trip, uh, what other episode do you think would be worth checking out? All of them, all of them, <laughs> all of them good man. Um, I think I think what we what what excited me most about. Um, about this docu-series is seeing the, the diversity in how blockchain is being utilized for human flourishing. So I had no idea, right, that there was um, a company like Democracy Earth uh, with Santiago Siri, which is one of the episodes where he's creating a, a, a blockchain-based token or token system for voting, right? Like we all know that voting um, 
has a lot of a lot of pitfalls, you know, in terms of uh, fraud and abuse and, and kind of corruption um, in other countries, but also arguably potentially our country as well. Um, but the token system, you know, has it so that people can put their money where their mouth is, vote on a variety and a number of, of things within their communities and within their their um, areas that maybe aren't just electing a politician, but voting on like fixing a pothole, right? Or identifying certain um, public, you know, public access systems that need a little bit of more work. So you're really taking voting from the ballot to like an everyday thing where you can actually start voting on a lot of important issues outside of just voting for a person to be in office that then you're relying on to kind of operate as your agent to make all those changes. Mm -hmm. You know, you're bringing that power, decentralizing it back into putting it back into the hands of people. So that's, that's, that's an example of a really, really cool kind of blockchain as democracy kind of um, application. Then you got have a guy like Ken Nguyen, right? Which is really awesome to see an, an Asian American kind of, you know, doing his thing. He used to be a part of AngelList. Um, his background, interestingly enough, is in, I believe it's in cognitive science or mm. some type of cognitive or neuroscience, something mm. working with the brain, right? Um, but he's a venture, worked in the big, one of the biggest venture capitalist firms, but now has his own um, firm called Republic.co. Um, and they are helping, um, you know, people who don't have a net worth of say, I, I don't, I'm not forget the exact amount is if it's 1 million or 2 million to be able to, to be able to participate in venture capital, to be able to do so through this platform, you know, through and that's blockchain based um, and particularly kind of making it much more accessible for people to support and fund projects um, in a very similar way to what venture capitalists um Kind of do so it opens gates for minorities uh more female based um uh, in, uh investors and funders and it, it's just it's just cool like for me the most exciting part was the people meeting meeting people who are doing creative things and most all of them aren't like they're still in their experimental phases like this thing is still so new i think that's what's what's really cool and exciting is that you have entrepreneurs who are trying to do something with blockchain technology that aren't like a hundred percent sure that this thing is going to work. Right. Like it's um, they're all still figuring it out. Part of Ken's team is a legal team. We interviewed his lawyers basically. And they're saying it's almost like kind of like the wild, wild West right now and figuring out how regulation and laws is, is treating um, Bitcoin and blockchain based things. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's cool to be kind of at the at the forefront of a lot of these developments that are going to set precedents for things down the road. Mm-hmm. And your film documentary is experimental too, <laughs> for a matter yeah. of fact. And what kind of feedback or reaction have you gotten from audience or folks who've seen it? Um, I've only seen some of the stuff that you know on the on the comment section. I think mm-hmm. I think people have been I've been somewhat pleased as in terms of like it not being um, too technical. Kind of th- it was meant to be for you know I think Kelvin says it's like your your tech savvy uncle who was like asking you about Bitcoin and like mm-hmm. like or like your grandma or your family member right someone's like mm-hmm. 
might not necessarily be super interested on on uh, all the other fronts. So I've been hearing good things for the most part. I think people like that it's um, uh, that we take a, a hip hop street approach to it. And, and I wouldn't even call it hip hop. I mean, there's nothing inherently hip hop about the show. It's not like we're, I'm not like, I do a little bit of dancing here and there, but I think the idea is like, how do we take, how do we take explaining what this thing is outside of its normal context? And I think thinking about it um, on a human level, on a cultural level, on a, on a, I want to call it a spiritual level, right? But like the last episode in the docuseries um, talks about blockchain as philosophy. And we have uh, Krista Rose and um, he's there to help paint the picture of the different communities of people that are kind of forming around the different cryptocurrencies, right? So a lot of the different people who are participating in, in Ethereum versus Bitcoin Cash versus Bitcoin um, kind of have a certain lens and worldview. And it's just interesting to see the, the different um, types of, of, of souls or characters that are, mm-hmm. and, and that are tied to ideals and principles. Because if, if we, if, you know, most of us know that, you know, the whole, the whole inception of, of Satoshi, um, Satoshi's paper, right, was like, kind of based on this whole idea of decentralization, right? And kind of like, I want to say anti-government per se, because um, I don't necessarily think um, that's the best way to market it, but it's it's really just get, taking the power of, you know, of the few into and, and dispersing it into the many um, and back into people's hands. So anyways, there's always been kind of that ideological um, aspect to it. Uh, through meeting a lot of the people uh, doing uh, your your film production, a lot of ideas were going through your mind and it helps you kind of crystallize a, a lot of things that you've been thinking about anyways. Um, but, but stepping back, is there an aspect of where this market is going that just really excites you most anything that really like blows your mind away as wow i can really see that as having a big impact on our society you know the market will tell you know the market is is what's going to determine like what sticks and what doesn't stick um i do know that i think it's still uh i think blockchain in in general is still undervalued in terms of like what people um, think it's, it's somewhat just maybe a fad or kind of a trend or that it's going to be replaced with, you know, it's just kind of a sexy thing like AI and machine learning or blockchain. Yeah. You know, but I think compared to a lot of AI and machine learning applications, I feel like blockchain technology has, has already proven to be like very useful in so many different industries. I mean, supply chain management, mm-hmm. law, ident- identity, like government trying to figure out how to, um, you know, better manage like social security cards and payments, um, payment systems. And uh, so it's anything from the business side. Uh, my, my thing that I'm interested and in, intrigued about is just how it will eventually flow into um, normal day life and how we'll be able to um, experience it on a day to day in a more tangible, you know, in a more tangible way. A lot of the back end stuff is, is happening, right? But I don't see the, the UI UX of it, the front client facing side as 
as exciting yet. Like there's not a lot of designers and creatives trying to figure out ways to visualize, for instance, the blockchain. Like how do you visualize the blockchain? Like is it, you know, if you take a company like Magically out in Florida, they're doing AR and VR work. A lot of that work is focused on creating games and movies where you can put on a goggle. But what if you can put on your set of AR or your glasses and visualize the blockchain transactions that have been happening around you or even your own personal blockchain ledger? If it's not like an online mobile banking that pops up that's static, what if you can have your set of goggles and you can just toggle back and forth all the transactions that you've been making and who, who they've been with. And if you need to double check things, it's, it's there, it's a blockchain visualized. So, you know, little things like this that I get, I get excited about thinking about how creatives um, and designers will help facilitate um, the, the traction in, in blockchain. And maybe, you know, maybe some people will argue that it's not a necessary component with or without it, it'll still function. I have no doubt about that, but I feel that there is a huge opportunity for designers to come in and um, play more with that space. What so, about Facebook's Libra? Do you think they'll be able to deliver this to the masses, say 1.2 billion people? <laughs> <laughs> you tell me. I mean, your guess is as good as mine. I, you know, one thing of, of advantage of Facebook, obviously, is the social engagement and reach and participation that already exists. Their buy-in and their trust from people is an, or, an already existing thing. Well, for the most part, right? I mean, people aren't. People still are very skeptical, and 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 uh, they're 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 still like, you know, concerned about how much Facebook knows about them. But at the same time. They are, they are logging in, they are sharing their data, they're making choices in and out of their Facebook accounts seamlessly. Like it's no longer kind of like a, I'm questioning if this is, if I should click this or not. It's just, it just works. So their advantage I think is that they already have such a huge um, level of participation and engagement that, you know, other currencies don't necessarily have that. Certainly they're capturing the attention of uh, headlines and uh, every, everybody uh, in uh, in the market is is really kind of speculating, you know, how how it's going to play out. But there's de- definitely a lot of question marks still, and whether it's going to be able to see the light of day with how regulators are going to treat them. So, how can folks get in touch with your team, you, Calvin, and you know about the film production? How, how can uh, people watch it? Like, where where can they get access to this documentary? So, so it's on Amazon Prime. Uh, most people who have Amazon Prime, they can log into Prime Video and uh, look at you know watch the entire season um, on Prime Video. It's also on Vimeo. Um, Vimeo um, does have a paywall, so you'll have to pay. Um, I'm not sure how much it is. Uh, I think I think Calvin priced it out at at a decent rate. I'm not sure, you know, what it what it, what, what he priced it out as, but Vimeo is available. YouTube has the first episode. If you guys kind of just want a teaser, um, and that, I think that's it for now. I think if you want to ever kind of contact uh, me or Calvin, you know, just shoot me an email. Um, it's rizrock at gmail.com. Uh, Node House is is the company that produced this, which is Calvin's uh, media company. Um, you can reach out to him as well and all of our details and kind of a uh, write-up of the docuseries is on the Note House website. So, awesome. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll link those in our show notes so, so folks can see it. All right. Thank okay. you, Risky.